0: let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 33, and verse 10. Isaiah chapter 33, and we'll be reading from verse 10 to the end of the chapter in verse 24. Isaiah 33, beginning in verse 10, let's hear now God's Word. Now I will rise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will lift myself up. You shall conceive chaff. You shall bring forth stubble. Your breath as fire shall devour you. And the people shall be like the burnings of lime. Like thorns cut up, they shall be burned in the fire. Hear, you who are far off, what I have done." And you who are near, acknowledge My might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? And who among us shall dwell with the everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. He who despises the gain of oppressions. Who gestures with his hands refusing bribes who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. He will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. Your heart will meditate on terror. Where is the scribe? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? You will not see a fierce people, a people of obscure speech beyond perception, of a stammering tongue that you cannot understand. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the majestic Lord will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams, in which no galley with oars will sail, nor majestic ships pass by. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our King, He will save us. Your tackle is loosed. They could not strengthen their mass. They could not spread the sail. Then the prey of great plunder is divided. The lame take the prey. And the inhabitant will not say, I am sick. The people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. This evening we continue focusing our attention with the Lord's help on verse 17 of the passage that we read. Speaking to those who by faith are trusting in the Lord during troublous times in Jerusalem, when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, has sent his generals and his army to surround the city of Jerusalem to threaten it, to mock King Hezekiah, to mock the living God, and to boldly proclaim that they will be conquering God's great city. During that time, there were many hypocrites, sinners in Zion, who were seized with fearfulness, who were afraid and trembling. And no doubt, Hezekiah and the believers had fear as well, but they were trusting in the Lord. They were trusting in a kingdom that cannot be shaken because of the faithfulness of an unchangeable God. And so the believers, not the hypocritical unbelievers, but the true believers whose life bore fruit giving evidence that they were right with God through faith in His promised Messiah. They walked with God. They walked righteously. Their, Their words gave evidence that their hearts were right with God. They refused bribes and oppression and injustice and bloodshed. And the Lord promised that He would defend them. He would cause them to be exalted, to dwell on high, safe from attack. That the place of these believers, the place of their defense would be the fortress of the rocks, even the Rock of Ages. God Himself would protect them. God With us, Emmanuel, as we saw, the angel of the covenant was sent to kill 185,000 of God's enemies and to defend His people on account of this small remnant of believers. Their bread would be given them. Their water would be sure. They would survive this siege of the Assyrians. And by faith, their eyes would see in this historical deliverance by the angel of the covenant, the Preincarnate Christ, their eyes by faith would see King Emmanuel in his beauty and in his glory. And uh, we, we saw this morning a number of aspects of that, but let's just remind ourselves, especially as we come to the Lord's table, seeking to remember Christ, seeking to remember his death and proclaim that death, of course his beauty was seen in this glorious victory and deliverance of God's people in Jerusalem. Of course it was. But how much more beauty and glory do we see when He came in the flesh? Not just appearing like a man, as an angel of the covenant, but when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and tabernacled among us. When the feet of Him who brought good news was shown to be glorious. And he crushed the serpent's head with that foot at the cross. Isaiah 53, as we saw, points out that few received the message of the gospel in faith. Few people that that observed Jesus during his earthly ministry saw anything beyond uh, perhaps a a great teacher, a miracle worker. um, And eventually they saw nothing attractive in him at all as he's hoisted up on the cross. And many of them began to mock Him and ridicule Him. And He became a stumbling block to the Jewish people. But by faith, God's people look to Him on the cross and they see His beauty. They see Him as the King in His beauty. We said it with the crown of thorns, with the purple robe, and the staff as a scepter. They mocked Him with the placard above His head. And yet it declares that He is the King of the Jews. That He is the King of the of glory, the King of beauty. My friends, if Jesus had come and had any other crown than a crown of thorns, we would all be going to hell. He had to become a curse for His people. He had to wear not a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. Thorns and thistles and the curse that God pronounced against Adam for his sin. He had to become that. He had to bear that. He had to be scourged and mocked and spit upon. And he had to set his face like flint to the cross, courageously, in faith, bearing an eternal hell of judgment on behalf of his people. And by doing that, by being weak and vulnerable and offering himself up as a sacrifice and being taunted and maligned by the world and by the devil and his angels, he conquered. He crushed the serpent's head underfoot. He made a spectacle of all the demons, all of the powers and principalities. He made a spectacle of them all. And we mentioned it this morning, the beauty of His person. You look at Jesus, you see His humanity, that He's one of us, that He thirsted, He hungered, He was tired at the well in Samaria. He can sympathize in principle with the temptations and the weakness and the weariness that we face and when he was offered up on the cross we see him in agony there's nothing you experience dear Christian in the Christian life that Jesus cannot relate to he has experienced far worse he's experienced the fullness of hell on the cross and so he's a suffering sympathetic savior and high priest and king but also he's the sovereign God man fully divine The priest who offers up himself sovereignly, just as the priest in the Old Testament would slay the victim, the animal on the altar. The priest being in complete control. The priest deciding the moment that the sacrifice would be killed and offered and so on and so forth, precisely offering up that sacrifice at every point. So we see Christ in the Gospels. Not only as we might say in a way the sacrificial victim, but He's not a victim. He's also the priest sovereignly orchestrating redemption. How beautiful to see one who is both infinite, eternal, unchangeable God and yet who sweat drops of blood and was sorrowful unto death in His humanity. Beauty is something that is often associated, physical beauty, with proportion. The proportion and dimensions of the facial features oftentimes uh, are, are given as a definition of beauty. Jesus Christ has a perfect proportion and dimension of every grace, every moral virtue. Everything that reflects the character of God in the image of God in man, Jesus has it all to perfection. You see His love, His compassion, you see the wrath of the Lamb, His holiness and justice, His mercy and grace. We look at Him and we see the glory of the perfect God in the face of Jesus Christ. The beauty of His person. The beauty of deity manifested in humanity. And... and really, at face value and principle, you think, well, that's impossible. But it's possible. The beauty of His holiness, His perfect obedience and submission to the Father's will, the beauty of His fulfilling the law in every aspect, clothing us with beauty for ashes, the beauty of His sufferings, the beauty of His pain and anguish, not just in His body, but in His soul, the worst of his sufferings, the mystery of his sufferings, God forsaken of God, as Luther said. Who can understand it? But it's beautiful. We deserve to be cast out into outer darkness. We deserve to be cut off from the comfortable presence of God. Jesus endured those very things. And the sun went black. And, and because He bore that wrath and was separated from the Father's love, the curtain from top to bottom was torn, opening the new and living way into the presence of God. The beauty of His words. The beauty of His words. On the cross, He, he made seven statements. He said first, of these seven statements, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do." Look at the beauty of Christ as one who was sinned against more than any other human in human history. Because being the infinite Son of God, the Creator of all things, coming to His own creatures, even His own people and being rejected, they had a greater duty to Him than any duty to any other human that ever walked the face of the earth. And they failed to render Him the worship and the obedience and the honor that He deserved. And instead, they killed Him, they rejected Him, they pierced Him. And yet His response as He's being mocked and pierced and tortured by those He created, those who in His divine nature He is upholding, He's causing their hearts to beat, He's causing their lungs to provide them with oxygen, He's giving them every single blessing that they have in this life and they're nailing Him to the cross. And He says, probably specifically of these Roman soldiers, but we can apply it more broadly, Father, forgive them. And He makes an excuse for them. Rather than being vindictive, rather than highlighting and and pinning them to to the wall like a prosecutor, He says, Father, forgive them. Look at how ignorant they are. They have no idea. What they're doing. Some of these people knew. And they crucified Him because they saw that He was the Son and the heir, as the parable says. But for the most part, He says, Father, forgive them. They they have no idea what they're doing. Have mercy upon them in their ignorance. Secondly, as He's undergoing hell in body and soul on our behalf, what is He doing? He's evangelizing the dying thief A man who initially mocked Him like the rest of them. And Jesus leads him to eternal life and He says, today you shall be with Me in paradise. Jesus always thinking of others. He he could be sorrowing and really feeling feeling sorry for Himself like we so often do. He doesn't do that. As he's being mocked, he actually leads one of the mockers to salvation. Thirdly, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, instead of thinking of himself like we so often do when we feel sinned against, he thinks of his mother. And he he brings he calls John the Apostle over and he says to his mother at the foot of the cross, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And he makes arrangements for John the Apostle to take care of, of Mary throughout the the remainder of her days, honoring his mother, seeking to be a blessing to others. Fourthly, we see him crying out in agony as we sang before the service, Psalm 22a, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here, he cries out in agony, in hell, hellish sufferings, in outer darkness, and yet, For the first time ever, in the midst of hell, as it were, there is faith. My God, my God, how beautiful, how altogether lovely our Lord Jesus Christ is. That even in the midst of hell, He would say, my God. No one in hell has assurance of salvation or assurance of eternal life. Assurance that God is their God. Nobody in hell. Jesus in the midst of hellish sufferings. Is able to have assurance that God is his God. He's able to say, Father, forgive them. He's able to say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And my friends, what a beautiful Savior he is. What beautiful faith to overcome all that he overcame, to cling to the promises of God to raise him from the dead. Fifthly, he declared, I thirst. Earlier when the soldiers seeking to mock him and maybe in, in some charitable effort gave him wine mixed with gall. And it would have been in that day some type of anesthetic to numb the pain. It would have tasted horrible. Probably when they gave it to people they would just spit it out or you know, try to swallow as much as they could. Bitter to the last drop. But Jesus refused any anesthetic because there's no anesthetic in hell. And so he endures the suffering until the point where he has finished the suffering. And then at that point, for reasons we don't have time to get into, it was, it was crucial that people understand what he was saying. People were, un, people were misunderstanding. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They misheard the words and thought he was calling out to Elijah. And so in order that they would understand this great cry that it is finished... He says, I thirst. And he gets that cup of sour wine and he, he, he wets his whistle. He's able now to speak clearly because his mouth, as we read in Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, is parched and dried. But now, he, he drinks a sip of this cup and sixthly, he's able to declare, it is finished. One word, tetelestai in the Greek. It is finished, because that's an important statement. He cried out with a loud voice, and thankfully, 60 years later, John includes what he actually said in the Gospel of John. It is finished, with a loud voice, declaring victory and declaring to us, as we come to the Lord's table this evening, that this sacrament of the Lord's Supper is not a sacrifice except a sacrifice of praise perhaps in response to the work of Christ. But it's not a sacrifice. Jesus has already finished the work. Our preparation for the Lord's Supper is not a sacrifice that atones for our sin. Our good works and new obedience in response to the Supper, none of these things make us right with God. It is finished. It has been finished. This is the perfect tense In in Greek, which is the perfect tense for this kind of statement, it is finished. It has been and now perpetually stands finished. The work has been accomplished, and all who trust in Christ have been justified through faith and have peace with God. And seventhly, he says, Into your hands, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Quoting from the Psalms words that believers probably used in the Old Testament when, they were, when it was time for them to die. Suitable words. Fitting words for somebody's last words. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus takes these words from the Psalms upon His lips. Indeed, they really are the prophetic words of Christ in themselves. And He declares His faith and confidence that His soul when it was absent from the body at His death, when He sovereignly relinquished His Spirit and laid down His life, nobody took it from Him, He didn't die trying to gasp for breath, He sovereignly gave up His Spirit at that time and it would be immediately in the hands of His Father. And He did this intentionally as an example for us so that we would have words to take upon our lips when we come... To the moment of our death, if we have time it, to say anything before we die, sometimes death comes in a surprising and unexpected way. But if we have time, these are wonderful words to speak as our last words on planet Earth before our soul and body separate. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, Lord God of truth. Is it uh, Psalm 34, I think? Into your hands. Jesus here sets an example that Stephen would follow when he was stoned to death in the book of Acts. We're told that he actually cried out to Jesus, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What a comfort. As we come to the end of our lives, or who knows what a day may bring, we're ready to die with those words on our lips. My friends, see the beauty of the Savior what, what is it about our beloved that makes Him so exceedingly superior to every other beloved, every other object of worship? My friends, He is altogether lovely. He is the fairest among 10,000. And all you have to do is run through those seven words from the cross. Google it. There's all kinds of lists. You can follow the Scripture text. The seven words. The, the beautiful words upon His lips. Psalm 45.2 In itself, these things point to His beauty. My friends, when we come to be confronted with temptation to leave Christ behind, to prefer some other love to Him, to compromise and to fall into sin, to indulge our lusts, to turn away from Him or exchange Him for some other love or beloved. When we find ourselves like the Jews, tempted to say, We have no king but Caesar. My friends, return to the cross. Return to the king in his beauty dying on the tree in Calvary. Return to that. And say, no, I have no king but Jesus. Barabbas, I don't think so. The pope, not at all. Muhammad, sorry. Sin, nope. Jesus, the king in his beauty. But we must cling to Him. We must remind ourselves why we became Christians in the first place. Sometimes I think we forget. We, can't, we became Christians because we loved Jesus. Because He first loved us. And we see His beauty and His glory. Let's not lose sight of that. Let's not allow the devil to, to put a wedge between us and Christ. We love Him because He first loved us. We, we wouldn't trade Him for anything. Now as important as those things are, The text does go on to speak to us of heaven. Through the eyes of faith, these people in Jerusalem, these believers would not only see in this deliverance King Jesus, the King in His beauty, King Emmanuel, a sneak preview, but but they would also see in Jerusalem as it was delivered, as it was delivered, Back into the hands of a godly king, and you can read about the worship that took place in the days of Hezekiah, his reformations, the justice and righteousness and peace that prevailed uh, throughout much of his reign, they would, they would be able to see with eyes of faith, the land, the land, the promised land, but not literal Jerusalem, literal Judah. Rather, the land that is very far off. In seeing the deliverance of Jerusalem below, they would by faith see Jerusalem above. And they would see things that are described in chapter 33, verse 20 that cannot possibly be said of Jerusalem below. Hezekiah knew that full well. We know that full well. Just as we see the king in his beauty here cannot possibly refer to Hezekiah. In fact, at the end of the chapter, it actually tells us, the Lord is our King. It's it's the divine Messiah, the Lord Jehovah Himself, verse 22, that is our King. Couldn't be just Hezekiah. In the same way, what's said here in verse 20 cannot merely be earthly Jerusalem. Look upon Zion. In the same way you've looked by faith to Emmanuel, look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts, Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed. Nor will any of its cords be broken. Well, we know that's simply not the case. Within just over a hundred years, Jerusalem was conquered by Babylon. And all the stakes, as it were, were pulled up of that earthly city. The church continued in exile and came back later. But this is not referring to some kind of unchangeable, perpetual, earthly city. In fact, we're told in verse 24, the inhabitant of this city will not say, I am sick. We know that's not true because Hezekiah himself got sick and had to be healed and eventually died. So, this is speaking to us of the land, the heavenly country that is far off. And lest we think that this is imposing the New Testament upon the Old. Let's listen to what the Apostle tells us in Hebrews 11 concerning the faith of the Old Testament saints. When they thought of the land of Canaan, the promised land, the earthly Jerusalem, by faith, what were they seeing? What were they understanding as the significance of these things? What were they seeking? Hebrews 11 verse 9. Speaking here of Abraham, who had been given Canaan as an inheritance, at least the promise was given to him. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents, tabernacles, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God." And you can see in verse 13 of all the patriarchs, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. The land that is very far off. What land were they seeing? What promised inheritance were they receiving by faith? What far off land were they assured of? Having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they'd come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Chapter 12, we used it as a call to worship last week. Says that in new covenant worship, we approach Jerusalem above. Verse 22 of Hebrews 12, we've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above, which Paul says is our mother. We've come to an innumerable company of angels, to the church in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to Christ, our mediator in the Jerusalem above and he caps it off in chapter 13 by saying here we have no continuing city but we seek one which is to come so this is the heavenly country the promised land of that eternal Canaan and by faith though it's far off for these believers in Jerusalem and for us here tonight by faith it's brought near the substance of things hoped for. The city which is to come is brought near in our experience by faith. As, as Moses, when he ascended Mount Pisgah and he looked down at the promised land and amazingly his eyes had not lost their, their ability to see clearly at age 120 and he sees the inheritance that eventually at the transfiguration he would enter into. And so, here we tonight when we reflect upon God's deliverance uh, from our sin at the cross, when we remember the Lord's death, we anticipate, we look by faith at our heavenly inheritance and it's brought near. Your eyes will see. Your eyes will see. Verse 20, look upon Zion. Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Let's look first at that. Zion, the city of... Of our appointed feasts. You know, Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem, was the place where God had determined that His people would come. He set His name there. They came there three times a year to feast together, to commemorate the work of redemption in the Old Testament under Moses, where God delivered them out of bondage in Egypt into the promised land of Canaan as a picture of the redemption of Christ and they came and they feasted and they celebrated and they worshiped and we have all the Psalms of Ascent especially Psalm 122 which says in in Jerusalem it's there that the Lord's tribes go up this is an ordinance for Israel they would all ascend to the holy city Zion the city of their appointed feasts and my friends the heavenly Mount Zion is the city of our appointed feasts. And we will look with eyes of sight upon this city of our appointed feasts because Jesus constantly describes heaven as a feast. Matthew chapter 8, He says that though the children of the kingdom will be cast out, that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets. In Matthew 22, He tells the parable of the wedding feast and he says come to the wedding and and heaven is pictured as a wedding hall and the final judgment takes place and so on but heaven is a wedding feast famously in Luke chapter 16 the parable of the rich man and Lazarus you have the rich man clothed in fine purple garments feasting sumptuously every single day and then what happens he dies And Lazarus, the poor man, the beggar, sitting at the gate, barely able to eat the crumbs from the rich man's table, he dies. And what happens? There's a a tale of two destinations. The rich man opens his eyes in hell where there's no more feasting. and, And he would give the world for a drop of water on his tongue. But the poor man, Lazarus, opens his eyes in heaven. As it were, the angels take his soul to heaven, to Abraham's bosom. Remember at the Lord's Supper, John was resting upon the Lord's bosom. He was reclining at the table upon the Lord's shoulder. And this is the same idea here, that heaven is pictured as a great feast. And reclining at the table with Abraham and no doubt Isaac and Jacob is this poor man, this beggar Lazarus, as he feasts and rejoices in his soul with the saints of God in heaven. Revelation says that we're anticipating the marriage supper of the Lamb. We need to anticipate that and be prepared for that. For that day when Christ returns with His church, from heaven, He brings His saints with Him. And it's pictured as a city. The Bride of Christ. As a city, a perfect city. Twelve gates, twelve foundations. The, prophet, the, uh, the patriarchs, the tribes rather. Twelve tribes, twelve apostles. Christ brings His church with Him. The Bride, the city. As He returns in glory. This is the, the, the wedding feast. And understand this, when Jesus administered the Lord's Supper to His disciples, He said that He would not drink of that cup until He drank it anew in His Father's kingdom. And if we cross-referenced it enough, I think I could demonstrate that He's speaking of heaven. What He says is that in this Supper of the Lord, we're anticipating the joy and blessedness and celebration that we will have for all eternity I'm not saying heaven is actually a dinner party and that misses the point right in fact this is the big problem in our view of heaven that we as Americans tend to think of celebration for its own sake we think of Thanksgiving dinner which has become what not so much a reflection on the reasons why we're celebrating the good things God's given us and reflecting on them, and, and, and perhaps you do that, I'm not speaking of anyone in particular, but as a culture, it, it's more or less become a celebration of the food. We're celebrating the celebration. Our, our mouths are watering as we look at the turkey and the stuffing and the cranberry sauce and the cheesy mashed potatoes and we're, we're celebrating the pumpkin pie and all of these things. We're actually celebrating for its own sake. We're joyful in the means of joy and celebration that we have. It's not wrong to celebrate with food, with dessert, with wine, with all of these things. God has given them to us. But we can't lose sight of the reason that we're celebrating. Heaven is not rejoicing and celebrating for its own sake. Heaven is not about the pumpkin pie or the glass of wine or whatever is pictured in this imagery. Heaven is about the fact that we will be so overwhelmed with what God has done for us and in us and and how He has blessed us with this glorious inheritance that has not entered the mind of man thus far. We'll be so amazed that we will be filled with joy. However we express that, however we celebrate that, that is not the point. Uh, it, heaven is not like uh, if you think about two young boys who are walking around and up to no good, and they see a wedding reception outside with all kinds of food, and they sneak into the wedding reception and they find a seat and they 're eating all of the you know the roast beef and the mashed potatoes and they 're eating the the ice cream and all these things and they're they're tapping their glass for the bride and groom to kiss and they're pretending that they're really into the heaven is not just rejoicing in the fact that we get to eat ice cream or something like that heaven is wrapped up in a substantial basis for the joy and we will be so amazed at the beauty and glory of Christ looking upon him speaking with him receiving his embrace looking upon the attributes of God with greater clarity and unfettered, unhindered worship like never before, it will be nonstop joy and celebration. Uh, Jesus speaks of our joy being full. That's ultimately true in heaven. And there are so many ways in which we can conceive of the basis of our joy. John said that he had no greater joy than to see his children walking in the truth. That should be an encouragement to every parent. Applying that to parents. That, you know, obviously you can't save your children, but evangelize them. Pray for them. Labor to plant the seed of the kingdom in their hearts. Be the instrument by which God raises them up and causes them to walk in the truth because that is a gift and a blessing that you will enjoy for all eternity. No greater joy than to see my children Walking in the truth. And that's just one of a thousand substantial reasons why we will be filled with joy around this, in this city of our appointed feasts. And even now, through the eyes of faith, even in worship tonight, we can't see it with eyes of sight like we will then, but we can see in this Lord's Supper a feast, a celebration. And by faith... We begin to conceptualize the joy we'll have for eternity. And by faith, we draw it to ourselves now. We contemplate it now. And my friends, we above all people, we above all people ought to understand the importance of the assembled worship of God. If you're a Christian and you have this hope, and you have this eternal future Why would you downgrade and deprioritize the worship of God? Why as a church in America would we view the assembled worship of God as anything other than our greatest privilege? In Hebrews it says, "...forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner or custom of some." My friends, as we come to this table, as we come into these pews week by week, morning and evening, what a great opportunity... To think in advance of our joy, to experience it, to celebrate substantial, meaningful joy, Zion, the city of our appointed feast. If we don't use that blessing, we will lose it. That's what happened in Jerusalem. They didn't appreciate it. They added and subtracted and, and neglected the worship of God till God eventually sent them into exile. And I think this this whole virus Uh, Lockdown thing. This is a precursor. This is a warning to us to take the worship of God seriously, to to not be easily denied entrance to the city of our appointed feast, but to come willingly, joyfully into the courts of the Lord whenever we get the chance. And if the government tries to say no, you can't ascend to God's city. You can't come to Mount Zion, the city of your appointed feast, my friends we ought to let them pry the the communion cups out of our cold, dead hands before we give in to that. Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Secondly, Jerusalem, a quiet home. Jerusalem, a quiet home. Now this word quiet means at ease and is oftentimes translated and really interpreted in a negative way, complacency. When Amos rebukes those who are at ease in Zion, this is the word that he uses. So so we need to get a sense here of exactly what is being said about the Jerusalem above, that that it is a quiet home. Now this would have been significant for the Jews under siege of Assyria because the Assyrians couldn't stop trash-talking around the city gates, mocking attacking the name and glory of God, King Hezekiah, and so on. So there's something here that God is saying, I'm going to silence iniquity. I'm going to silence these things. Jerusalem will be a quiet home for God's people. Not quiet that they won't be rejoicing and praising God, but, but all iniquity, all sacrilege, all evil will be silenced forever. But again, quiet It's often used in a negative sense. In fact, chapter 32, verse 9, it says, Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. You see the repetition of this same word, quiet or at ease or complacent. Those who are decadent, those who are enjoying earthly wealth and pleasure and prosperity and ignoring spiritual things. Give ear to my speech, In a year and some days you will be troubled, you complacent women. It's repeating it again and again. Verse 11, Tremble, you women who are at ease. Be troubled, you complacent ones. And so on. It's calling them to repentance. But then notice, once they come to repentance, once the alarm clock goes off and they shake themselves of their worldly stupor, and they open their eyes and they awaken In righteousness and repentance, notice verse 15, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is counted as a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. The work of righteousness will be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. And and our word is there this quietness in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places though hail comes down in the forest and the city is brought low in humiliation so what it's actually saying is that if god's people repent and pursue righteousness he'll give them peace not complacency but true peace and security and ease even while they're fighting the battles of the Lord in this life. But how much more in the Jerusalem above? My friends, our eyes of sight will look upon Jerusalem as a quiet home. We will see it. We will see it. And I'm not talking by faith. I'm saying our eyes, like Job says, our eyes will see this. Our eyes will see when Christ returns in Revelation 20 and the war is over. And the wicked one is cast into hellfire, Cast into the lake of fire. The place prepared for the devil and his angels. And Satan, the serpent of old, is vanquished and defeated. And the, 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 the door, the gates of hell are slammed shut. Never to be seen again. And all of God's enemies who have rejected Him and who surrounded the holy city in Revelation 20 before Christ's return, and they surrounded and they threatened and sought to victimize the people of God, they'll all be vanquished. Iniquity will have its mouth shut forever. And the war will be over. And God's people will return home to Jerusalem. The city above which has foundations. Our homeland, our heavenly country that we're distant from, that's the land that's very far off, but we are citizens of it, and God's people will meet Him in the air and ever be with the Lord. The house made without hands eternal in the heavens. 2 Corinthians 5.1 And we'll return home. You see a beautiful picture of this in Joshua. When God's people have conquered the land... Of Canaan substantially. We're told in Joshua 22 verse 4, and now the Lord your God has given rest to your brethren. There's that rest, that ease, that peace, that security. The war is over. God has given rest to your brethren. Joshua's here speaking to the eastern tribes who conquered their land early on, but kept fighting in solidarity with the other tribes until all the tribal inheritance was substantially subdued. He says, The Lord your God has given rest to your brethren, those other tribes, as He promised them. Now therefore, return and go to your tents and to the land of your possession, which Moses the servant of the Lord gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Verse 6, so Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. They went to the tabernacle that we'll look at in a moment, as it were. It's a picture of when the war is over and the, the, the army of the hosts of the Lord are discharged for that final time, and we return home to the place that Jesus Christ, our King and our Savior, is preparing for us in heaven as we speak. That heavenly country of which the patriarchs were hoping and waiting in Hebrews chapter 11. But even now, though we don't see those things with eyes of sight, by faith we can see them. By faith we can wait for them and anticipate them. In fact, in John 14 when the Lord Jesus speaks to us of the place that He's preparing for us. The Father's house in which are many mansions that He goes to prepare for us in heaven. Nevertheless, you can see that there's something here for us even in this life to latch hold of. Go on to verse 23 of that same chapter and listen to what he says. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. We long for the day when we will be home in our heavenly home. In the land that is afar off, but even now, as we walk with God through Christ, as we trust Him, as we repent and walk in His ways more and more through sanctification, He and the Father make their home with us. Jesus says, The Father and I will come to that person and make our home with Him. So we haven't reached that point of discharge, we have not reached our heavenly home. But our home, we're at home in the body in one sense. The Father and the Son by the Holy Spirit live inside of every believer. And our home is where the heart is. We have God living in us. Christ in our hearts by faith. A quiet home. Verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives it. Not as the world gives it, but peace in the midst of, of tribulation and affliction we can still have peace and quiet in our souls and so this is a reminder for us we have not reached our destination we long for the day when the war will be over but dear believer the war is not over you need to keep fighting And and you and I, and let me just preach to myself, I need to stop thinking that we're going to see Jerusalem as a quiet home in our own life, in our own experience. We need to be very, very careful at expecting an idealized state of the church of God on earth, particularly in the type of nation that we dwell in today. It's going to be a fight. It's going to be a battle. We're going to have the Rabshakeh surrounding our city gates and shouting and mocking. We're going to have hypocrites and sinners in Zion turning aside, making shipwreck of their faith, betraying the Lord and His kingdom. We're going to have these things. And the conflict that exists in the church on earth is just a reality because Satan is sowing discord among the brethren. Satan is seeking to steal and kill and destroy And we can't expect that he's going to stop doing that until he's finally cast into the lake of fire. Whatever victory Christ has gained over him, he's still active. So we need to keep fighting. And the passage I read in chapter 32 of Isaiah, the work of righteousness will be peace. I wonder, perhaps, if in the church, and think of our own denomination, our own presbytery, bringing it home to ourselves... I wonder if we need to stop directly seeking peace and start seeking righteousness. Peace is is not the thing that we seek, it's a byproduct of righteousness. And we have a fast day coming up, and it's for all of us as elders to, to examine ourselves and repent where we need to repent. And the church, I believe, instead of seeking peace, needs to seek righteousness. Where there is no righteousness, there will not be peace. You're not going to have the peaceable fruit of righteousness if you don't actually have righteousness. The work of righteousness will be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. If we want Jerusalem to be a quiet home and a peaceful habitation, then we need repentance. And if we don't have repentance and we don't cling to the truths that we confess and profess and we cut corners and we compromise, don't be surprised if God gives us over to utter conflict and lack of peace? What kind of Heavenly Father would would reward us rather than spanking us for our sin and our disobedience? We need righteousness as we look ahead. We need to keep fighting until the battle is over and we enter our quiet home in glory. Well, thirdly, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. A tabernacle, back to verse 20, that will not be taken down, not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken. What are we going to see in glory? What are we going to see with our eyes of sight when we enter into our inheritance? Well, we're going to see that the tabernacle of God is with men. We're going to see Revelation 21 tells us that heaven itself has no temple or tabernacle, but the Lord Himself and the Lamb are its temple. The whole new heavens and new earth, the world to come, the glorious, eternal, heavenly estate of God's people, which no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man. That eternal weight of glory is itself in every square inch of it filled with the presence and glory of God. It's not just a temple or tabernacle in the midst of Canaan. It's not just a holy place or a most holy place or in the most holy place you've got the ark and on the ark you have the, uh, the mercy seat and all these increasing levels of holiness. My friends, every square inch of heaven will be more holy than the top of the mercy seat. More holy than anything that we've experienced in this life. All of it will testify to the glory of God and showcase His presence in the midst of His people. Revelation one three: Behold, that's a command to look. Look upon this tabernacle. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and He will dwell with them and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and will be their God. And it won't be like Adam and Eve walking with God one moment and cast out of Eden the next moment. This is a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Because it's on the basis of the work of Christ. And He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When He said, it is finished, understand, that guaranteed the eternal security of this tabernacle of this heavenly inheritance. No longer will we be pilgrims and exiles and nomads putting up our tent and taking it down like Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. This tabernacle is not going anywhere. It's not, it's not even a tabernacle, really. Second Corinthians 5 says, when our tabernacle falls apart, our body, we have a house made without hands, eternal in the heavens. Heaven itself will be the place of our residence in the presence of God. Abraham and the patriarchs lived in the land of Canaan as nomads, as exiles, as foreigners, dwelling in tents. But this is like no tent you've ever seen. It's a permanent heavenly home. But through eyes of faith, it's brought near. Right now, God is constructing His church as a temple for His own presence. That we as God's people are rooted and grounded in Christ. We've been built upon the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. We're living stones built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And we are being laid in Zion and built into a holy temple in the Lord. As individuals, we're the dwelling place of God. Corporately, it just exponentially multiplies the presence of God as we come together the parts are, are far beyond, when they come together, the, the sum of the whole. And so, by faith even now, tonight, we can experience the presence of God. And the beautiful thing is that the presence of God in your body, in your tabernacle, as an individual Christian and human being, the union that your body has with Christ... That itself is secure and unchangeable. That, such that even when your body is laid in the grave, it's not just your soul that will be united to Christ. Your body will be united to Christ and He will raise it up at the last day. Your body as it dwells in the ground, Christ sees it, He knows it. Don't get into all the science of all, all, you know the breakdown of the body and the different molecules your body is united to Christ and will be raised up at the last day. So even your body as a tabernacle united to Christ with His presence connected to it will never ultimately be taken down. You'll just be laid in the ground falling asleep in Jesus only to be summoned at the time of His appointment. But the church as a whole is a tabernacle that will not be taken down. And my friends, what does that mean? What does it mean for God to dwell inside of you? What does it mean for Christ to dwell in your heart by faith? What does it mean for the fullness of the Godhead? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All the fullness of God to dwell in you. Paul describes this in Ephesians chapter 3. And there are many ways to answer that question of what he's talking about when he says that we'd be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. So there's the Holy Spirit inside of us. And Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. There's Christ, the Son of God, in our hearts. And uh, we're told that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Ephesians 3.19 There's God the Father. What does it mean? Well, just briefly, a couple things in that verse. It says that We being rooted and grounded in love. What does it mean for Christ by His Spirit, by faith, to dwell in us? It means that we're rooted and grounded in love. The more we commune with Christ, the more we will recognize His presence in our brothers and sisters in the church. The more Christ dwells in our hearts and is formed in our hearts by faith, the more by faith we will see the presence of Christ even in believers who are not doing so well and they'll see it in us maybe if we're not doing so well spiritually but by faith we will see and perceive Christ in those other people and our love for Christ will be increased and then our love for those people will be increased. Christ loved His people and gave Himself up for them. If He's in you, He's going to cause you to love His people and want to give up yourself for them. So there's a fruit. There's an aspect of the presence of Christ rooting and grounding us together in love to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. Do you have a desire to rejoice in the love of Christ with the other members of this church or with other believers that you know? Do you have a desire To do that. That's the presence of Christ in you. Because He wants to be with His people. And if He's in you, He's going to cause you to have a magnetic spiritual attraction to His people. To perceive His boundless love alongside them. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It means to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Uh, It's not talking about some sort of metaphysical phenomenon where the eternal God somehow comes and lives inside of your being in some kind of... uh, It's not talking about that. It's saying that when God comes to take residence inside of you, it's a very practical and discernible thing. He causes you to know that Jesus loves you. And when you have assurance that Jesus loves you and gave Himself for you, That is the presence of God, the three persons of the Trinity, in your life. When you have inflamed in your heart the assurance of God's love in Christ that no one can take away from you, that is the presence of God in your life. If you have a spark of that assurance, you have a spark of of experiencing the presence of God. And the more you get of God's presence, the more that you will be assured and know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. That's what it's talking about. This tabernacle of the presence of God even in this life. Well, fourthly and finally, in verse 24, the inhabitant will not say, I am sick. You know, the people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. I'll just say something very briefly about this. This is a very difficult aspect of the passage, so we're not going to get lost in the weeds. But uh, verse 24 is referring back to this Jerusalem above. And the inhabitant will not say, I am sick. This is a promise. This is an aspect of heaven that becomes more and more meaningful in the lives of God's people the longer they live in this fallen world. We take for granted as younger people, we take for granted that we won't feel pain. That pain and weakness will be something rare that happens when we're sick or when we have an injury and then things will get back to normal. We take for granted that uh, in terms of our minds and our recalling certain things and being able to function in certain ways that that we're just always going to be sharp as a tack. This is not the case. We live in a fallen world where people experience the meaning of this Hebrew word for sick, which means sick or weak or wounded or diseased, grieved full of anguish or sorrow, the misery of this life is wrapped up in this Hebrew word. And my friends, that's the world, that's the the kind of place that we live right now. But the inhabitant of the Jerusalem above will never say what we say now. Will never say, I am sick. Because there will be no sickness, no disease, no misery, no anguish, no grief, no wounding or disablement, or any of these things. They won't say it because they won't be experiencing it. And this is something we need to take to heart when we come to the Lord's table. Jesus says by faith, don't strive for the bread that perishes. Don't strive for the pleasures of this world that eventually aging and disease and death will rob from you and rob your ability to even appreciate them. Remember um, Barzillai the Gileadite, David wanted to reward him for remaining loyal during Absalom's rebellion, and David says, all right, I'm going to invite you to the palace and you're going to enjoy all of the benefits of living in the king's palace and eating at the king's table, and Barzillai says, I'm 80 years old, I can't even taste my food, I wouldn't be able to appreciate it, I can't even hear the singing men and singing women and the palace performers um, it's six or half a dozen. For, it doesn't make a difference for me. I wouldn't be able to appreciate it. So he takes his servant, Kim Ham, and lets, uh, lets him go and enjoy these things in the palace of King David. My friends, the pleasures of this life will eventually, uh, you'll be numb to them uh, through aging and, and sickness and weakness. These things will eventually mean nothing to you. But the bread that feeds you unto eternal life through Christ gives you eternal life in a world where there is no sickness and where this fallenness of the creation has been eradicated. The curse no more. And we will be raised up, having been sown in weakness, raised up in power. I am am sick. You're not going to hear that anymore. You might hear it. Today, tomorrow, you're not going to hear it in heaven. And why? Because all of our sins have been forgiven. Heaven is not a place for people in this world that have been perfect. It's not for perfect people. It's not for deserving people. It's for a forgiven people. When you come to the Lord's table, your worthiness is partly dependent upon your recognition of your unworthiness. And coming to the Lord's table is as someone who needs to be forgiven. Well, this land is far off, but it's nearer to us than when we first believed. And every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's another reminder that we're closer to that city, closer to that inheritance than the last time we celebrated the sacrament. Every single time without fail, we're getting closer and closer and closer till that day when we no longer have to walk by faith, but when we will see with our eyes the King in His beauty. Let's pray. Gracious God, kindle in our hearts and fan into flame a true and living faith in Your promises. We confess that just as Abraham was An old man as good as dead, and his wife was barren, and there was no earthly hope of a seed, much less an offspring, that would be more numerous than the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. But he believed God, and it was credited to him unto righteousness. Help us, by faith, to believe your promises, to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to see the King in His beauty, to see that it is finished, and to draw near to this table, even as we desire by faith to draw near to our heavenly inheritance. We ask in His name. Amen.